0: 1815, Europe, Waterloo. You don't even have to have been paying much attention in history to remember there was a battle of Waterloo and somebody called Napoleon was involved, trying to take over Europe. It was the water, this battle of Waterloo was France on one side, Napoleon was leading as the aggressor, and there was a coalition of forces on the other side made up of the British forces, Dutch forces, and German forces under the General Wellington, Duke of Wellington. The battle was finished, and as the smoke was clearing, messengers were dispatched. Messengers rode to the coast uh, where the English Channel divides the mainland to, from England, jumped on a ship, got across the channel. And then, the way they would get messages to London the quickest was through flags. I guess they would use the tallest building in the cities, which a lot of times was a bell tower at a church, and they would do flag signals and they would pass the message on and the message was being transmitted, and as it was getting to London, the fog was rolling in. London fog, apparently that's a thing. Anybody ever had a London fog coat? Right? I remember having one of those. and, and so, the fog was rolling in, the flag messaged, Wellington defeated, and then the, cloud, and the fog just, they couldn't see. And so, the message went out, Wellington defeated. And in London was in despair because this was a majorly big deal battle, and they losing meant it's going to get bad. Then the fog cleared, and they realized there was more to the message. And the message was, Wellington defeated the enemy. Circumstances on the ground were exactly the same in both cases, but the message was different. The first go-around, they didn't get the whole message. Once they got the whole message, they still had to choose whether or not to believe it. But it changed their outlook because they believed the message both times. They just didn't get the whole message the first time. That's what Peter's doing in this passage. He's giving us a message, specifically to Christians who feel um, the, the battering of life, in part at least because of their faith. What do we do? How do Christians find encouragement in the midst of suffering? This is the question Peter addresses today. And the way he answers it, he says that it's not Christ defeated. He's not defeated. But so many of us Christians live as if that's the message, Christ defeated, until the fog clears and we get the true message. Christ defeated the enemy at the cross, and the resurrection is what displays that. So let me show you where that comes from in 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18. Now if we were to go back, we will not, chapter 2 and 3 talks a lot about suffering and Christians suffering, and they were suffering, but they really weren't into the heavy suffering yet. Peter is encouraging them in the midst of suffering, because it feels really bad when you... this is the worst suffering you've ever experienced, even though it's not the worst you're going to experience. It's kind of like the first time a kid gets a cut on their hand, they're crying like their arm was cut off, right? And it's just a little scratch, but that's all they know. Until they get a bigger cut, and so on. And if we were to look back, we would see that the number one reason that Peter gives for Christians to embrace the suffering that they experience in life is because of the love of God seen in the cross and Christ's example. But he gives a different reason in this part. The reason here is because of the victory we have in Christ, seen in the resurrection. The resurrection is God's way of saying, you know that cross thing? You know where I sent my son to die? This is my stamp of approval. He's alive, and he's alive today. I can still remember the day as a kid realizing he's alive and thinking, my little brain trying to figure out, how could somebody be alive after they died? I think my little brain's still struggling with that. But anyway, there you go. So, let's start reading in verse 18, and it's kind of in the middle of this passage. I apologize for breaking it here, but there is a thought process here that makes it a decent breaking point. Um, and, And then let me give you a little word of caution. There's going to be some verses in here that are going to frustrate you today, okay? Because you're going to leave not understanding them, okay? You're in good company, okay? Martin Luther said, this is some of the hardest verses I know. I still don't think I know what they mean. One commentator said there's at least 180 different ways to read those two verses. So we're not going to solve that today, let me, let me just prepare you for that. But I do think that the message that needs to come through will be loud and clear, and I can at least give you that. So starting in 18, Peter writes, for, you could say therefore, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Let me just start there, okay? For Christ suffered once is pointing to the cross, His whole Good Friday experience where He was shredded and then nailed to a Roman cross and hung for six hours until He died. He, was, um, he suffered once for sins, okay? Now, that's important to recognize that the the way God led us to find freedom and forgiveness was through suffering, okay? Someone had to suffer so that we wouldn't have to. And that's what Jesus does once for all as the second Adam. The first Adam brought it in, the second Adam takes it out. For, um, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that would be him, for the unrighteous, that would be us. Just in case you're wondering, we're all unrighteous, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. we righteous for the unrighteous, and then here's the reason, to bring you to God, to bring me to God, okay? God sent his son knowing that he was sending him to die. He was sending him to live the life he calls us to live, to die the death We deserve to die so that we wouldn't have to. That's the gospel. That's the bad news, and that's the good news, all in one. And when we get that, it changes everything. When we get our brain around that, and that's why it keeps coming up. I don't know if you all have been around very long, but it comes up week after week after week. It's because we preach this, and that's what it majors on. So he says this. He says, uh, for the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, there's the cross, but made alive in the Spirit. There's the resurrection, okay? Now it gets weird. After verse 19, after being made alive, okay, I'm with you, resurrected, He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Who is that? Where is that? When did that? To those He defines imprisoned spirits, this helps a little. Verse 20, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, okay? So that would have been 2,000 years or more before Christ. So that's 4,000 plus years ago, because Noah's way back there. Days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also." That's confusing. "...not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God." Let me stop there. All right, let's recall the the flood, right? God God sent a worldwide global flood, flooded the entire planet as a sign to judge humanity for how wicked humanity had become, okay? But he made a way for eight people, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and his three, their three wives, okay, to, to come through, to be delivered from the judgment, okay? That was for at least two reasons. One, so that humanity could start over, kind of reboot, because Noah's, Noah was considered a righteous man, and he preached, actually. For 120 years while he's building this ark, this massive super tanker handmade in the mountains of all places, right? And he builds it and it takes 120 years, go figure, hand tools, right? And, and he builds it and the entire time he has this object lesson behind it. Why are you building that? Because we're gonna need it one day. It's gonna save our lives. So it was to save the family, the humanity. So we're all related to Noah, okay? We're all seeds of Noah, just like we're all seeds of Adam, okay? If you believe that this isn't just myth, that you believe as the Bible portrays itself as history and narrative, this, that we're all descendants from Noah and his three sons and, and the wives and all that. But there's another reason. It's also a foreshadowing or a picture of what God would ultimately do through Jesus Christ. The ark was the vehicle of deliverance. Okay. Isn't it interesting that later in the Old Testament we have a different kind of ark? Is that a chest? And in that chest would be like the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod, and, and a jar of manna maybe some frosted flakes. Now I don't know what else was in there, but there's all the and then it's like they carried it around and and on top of the, the lid of that were two angels and this was representing the mercy seat of God in the presence of his people. God present amongst his people and they built a tabernacle around it, which is a glorified tent. And that's where they did their that's where they worshiped until they settled in Israel in the promised land. And and uh, so that was also a picture though. God was going deli- to God delivered his people from Egypt. But it's all foreshadowing, again, Jesus on a different piece of wood, on a cross, where he delivered us. Think about the ark, the way it was designed. If you go back and read Genesis 6, 7, and 8, you'll learn that there is only one door on this massive ship, only one way in. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Salvation has one way, through Jesus. Okay? That's why you can't say all religions take us to the same place. They don't. David Platt likes to describe it this way. He explained it to a a Tibetan monk, I think, Buddhist monk, I'm not sure. He said, um, the the monk said, yeah, all religions are just other ways to get to the top of the mountain where God is. And, and, And Platt corrected him, and he said, no, Christianity says that God came down the mountain because we couldn't get up there. God made a way. He delivered us through arcs and through the Son of God. Through the cross of Christ. Okay, so that is is the the familiar story that would have been familiar to the readers, and it would be and it's somewhat familiar to us if you have read or been in church at all. Um, it would be that story. And so now, when we see it, we see uh, that he says that he went and preached or proclaimed. Jesus, at some point after the resurrection, went and proclaimed to imprisoned spirits, who were those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Okay. There's a lot of ways we could go, there's a lot of rabbits we could chase. For some reason, Jesus went and and proclaimed a message, we don't know what the message was, to a group of imprisoned spirits. We don't know if they were believers that just needed an opportunity to, to see the truth and respond. Don't think so, because that would be after they had died. Could be those that were being judged and this was the message of judgment that just kind of finished what was started could have been to humans, could have been to angels. There's a whole host of maybe could have, should have, maybe I don't knows. Um, and, and all I can tell you is this, is that he is talking about deliverance in a way that they understood in the day they read this. And this is part of being 2,000 years later than when it was actually originally spoken. We, don't always, we can't always connect the dots like they could have. And so, uh, for the sake of time, I want to get to the parts that we can understand. But there's a lot written. If you want to read more about it, there's a lot about it. Um, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So some people think Jesus was preaching through Noah in those days, and this is referring to that. Some people think he goes after the resurrection and preaches to them then, which I'm not sure why that would happen. And, you know, God makes exceptions and does things the way He will, and it's always right. So I'm okay with whatever the answer is. I just don't get to know. I don't feel like it, and I'm okay with that too. So let's see what we do get to know. Um, Let's see. So, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently on the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. Okay? And this is supposed to be a symbol. That's what He says, right? Um, this water symbolizes baptism. What does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes, um, it symbolizes an identification of being immersed into a community of faith that you weren't a part of before, okay? And, and, that inc- and you're delivered from being an enemy of God to into the family of God. We're baptized into a family, okay? So uh, when he says this, in it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you okay he's not saying that baptism saves you okay and i say that for two reasons one is everywhere else in the new testament that's not taught nowhere else in the new testament is that taught and second he's talking about a symbol of a symbol cuz baptism is a symbol it's not an act. i mean it's an act that symbolizes that you have a clear conscience before god because you have trusted Him to forgive you of your sins. Well, if you're forgiven, then you have a clear conscience. And that comes, and He talks about that when He says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, we said the cross defeats death. That's the message. Christ defeated the enemy. And how do we know that? the resurrection. And that's why he says it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He could have said it saves you by the cross of Christ. That's where our sins were judged, and they weren't judged against us. They were judged because Jesus said, put them on me. I'll take the heat for their sin so they don't have to. That's why you and I don't have to pay the price. And that faith saves us. It regenerates us. It converts us. It Well, it justifies us. It's where God declares us right with Him. All those are different ways of saying it saves us from the judgment we deserve, and every one of us deserves it. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. Sounds kind of like the Apostles' Creed, doesn't it? With angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So it's interesting how at the end, Jesus is, everybody is submitting to Jesus now. But think about what Jesus was saying just back in chapter 2 when he said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake and every human authority. 2 13. Then he says, Slaves and reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters in verse 18, 2 and 3 1, wives in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And all of those things include suffering to some degree, especially for the believer. And he's saying, Christ defeated the enemy. Okay, it's not just the cross, it's the resurrection. The cross shows us the love of God. The resurrection shows us the power of God. And it's also evidence that the love of God was all we needed. When we trust him in that, when we place our faith in the love of God, mercy and compassion shown towards us by sacrificing his son, then we find there's hope for forgiveness, and the resurrection gives us a hope that this isn't all there is, that this is not where my life ends, that this is where my life begins. And when I trust Christ, that's the first day of the rest of my eternity, not just the rest of my life. And that should be good news. And that's what encourages us, and that's what Peter was trying to do here, encourage the believers in the midst of their suffering. Because here's something he knew, or at least God knew. I don't know if Peter knew it. There was more to come. And they weren't in the midst of a lot of their suffering, and they weren't in the midst of a lot of their persecution yet. It hadn't even come, not big time. It had come in small waves, but it was going to come with the uh, imp- with the coming emperors that were going to follow, the one that was there in that, in that day. And this is in the 60s, okay, the AD 60s, and, um, and those, those days that would follow. So when you ask the question, that we're trying to answer today, Um, how do Christians find encouragement in the midst of suffering? It's in the victory of Christ. It's in the whole message when the fog clears. Christ defeats the enemy, your enemy, my enemy, sin and death, shame and guilt, Satan and hell itself. He defeated them all. Now here's the, here's the challenge, right? The crisis of faith is, well, it doesn't look like that. We look around and we see war. We see inflation. We see people losing jobs. We see families being torn apart. We see our bodies falling apart, right? It, there's lots of things we can point to and go, I see suffering. I don't see hope, OK? That's because we're focused on Christ defeated. We're not, we might even know Christ defeated the enemy, but we don't quite believe it sometimes. I don't know about you, but I'm there sometimes. When I find myself in despair, when I find myself tempted to go down that road of depression or maybe be over-anxious about the future, it's because I'm forgetting that last part. And maybe if you don't remember anything else, just remember Christ defeated the enemy, your enemy, my enemy, and we can walk with our um, with our conscience clear in Christ when we go to him and we say, I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to fear no one but you, my creator, who could who has my life in his hands and has every right to do whatever he wishes to do with my life. I'm submitting it to him because he's good and he's great. We used to say the blessing every every night when we would pray at our meal, or when every meal we would pray, it was God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Give us Lord our daily bread. Amen. I love that God is great, God is good. Isn't that true? He is great, almighty, all-powerful. He can do anything he wants to do. But that's not by itself good. It's not until we get to God is good that we realize God being great is also good because he is good, all good, okay? That means that he can do whatever he wants, and what he always chooses to do is good, okay? It's just, it's holy, it's righteous, okay? And it's merciful, which is why you and I are sitting here, because if God was only just, we would not be sitting here, because there would be no hope. Christ defeated the enemy. And I just pray that you and I will get our hearts and minds around that to the degree that it will impact how we look at our circumstances this year. Because I don't know that 24 is going to be better than 23. I don't know how many times I've heard people go, I'm so glad 23 is done. Well, I heard that at the end of 22 also. And 21, and especially 20, right? There are no guarantees there are no guarantees about what's coming, other than it's going to be hard. I mean, Jesus did warn us. We could have also read Matthew 24, right, which talks about the wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, natural disasters, right? Have we, we, we not had an earthquake in Japan recently? Have we not have two major wars flaming on right now that could lead into World War whatever? And we could get, we could fall into the temptation to just let our fears run away with all that, okay? right? And and the answer isn't just, I'm going to stop looking at the news, okay? That's not the solution. It might help, and I'm not sure it's not a good idea for some of us, because some of us watch it too much, but some of us watch it too little, because there's some value in that. When we see someone like, when we see a dictator say, I want that, and so I'm going to go take it by force with violence, we need to be reminded that that's wrong, that's a bully, And when we see it where we live, work, and play, we need to confront that because it's righteous to confront evil. Does that make sense? And so I can't do anything about the war in Ukraine, but I can do something about the bully in my city. Maybe, maybe not, but maybe if there's a a bully in my office, maybe there's something I can do about that. Maybe I just need to pray. Maybe I need to confront. I don't know. I'm not telling you how to do that maybe we should stop, just maybe we should start with just stop stepping on bugs. I know, right? Well, I, I, that was a whiplash turn, but it was on purpose. Why do we step on bugs? Okay, I'm not talking about the one in your bed. Okay, I'm, ta- that's, I'm talking about you're walking down the street and there's a bug and you go out of your way to step on the bug. Why do we, why do, we do that? Do we need to do that? Was that bug hurting us? It's because I can, because I have the power to do it. Sounds like a bully to me. Now you can say, that's blowing this way out of proportion. Okay, maybe. But I've stopped stepping on most of the bugs. Sometimes I will take care of them in my house. But you know, I just, I don't wanna be a bully. And I know I have the, I can be because There are times when I find myself in a position of power. What did Jesus do when he was the most powerful um, person in the room? We'll look at the story of Daniel to see how. Daniel, the most powerful person in the room in the country, and what did he do? He prayed and he served, and he was willing to die. Jesus, the most powerful person in the world, what did he do? He died on the cross for us sinners in need of grace. What if we lived that way? What if we lived that way this year? not afraid of our circumstances, fear of God, and that's all. Christ died. He also defeated our enemies. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for reminding us that there's a message that we need to internalize and let it change us from the inside out. Give us the courage to not only know the message, give us the courage to believe the message, that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how you demonstrated your love. And so, Lord, I pray that we would realize that it's not just about being a good person. It's not about chasing the American dream and doing it with, you know, baptizing the American dream and just going and doing that and being a part of a church. God, it's about living a changed life because we know that this world is, is heading downhill. And yet we don't have to. I mean, we're on this until you take us home, but the way we respond to what's in front of us is a choice. And I pray you would give us the courage to make the faith-filled choice. And Lord, I know that's not easy because I struggle with it all the time. Forgive me when I try to take control and power and employ the power that I have to control my circumstances, to ease my suffering, when instead I just need to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. Help me to abide in you to such a degree that everything I have and everything I I just depend on you, just like we sang, I depend on you and you alone. Help me do that in Jesus' name.